Um, before we get started with our message this morning, I want to, you got these two cards, and we don't put these in the seats so that you can just sit on them and then get up and leave. We put them in the seats so you'll have to grab them before you sit down, and I want you to, to, to put these in your pocket. These are invite cards. One of them is for the series that we're in. We're going to talk about, uh, at least begin today on the, on the Book of Ruth. The other is an invite for an event that's happening on December the 9th in the evening. It's a kickoff for our student ministry. The student ministry is called 412. 412 is from, yeah, that ought to get an amen or something. First Timothy 412. I'm not going to tell you the passage. I want you to go look it up and read it um, when you get home. But this is from 6 to 8 on December the 9th. This is an independent thing from, uh, you see some black signs around that say December 9th. That didn't have anything to do with this. That December the 9th event is the, uh, the, we will be making in one service that morning on December the 9th, that Sunday morning, biggest announcement in the history of this church. Just plan on being here that day. Uh, so this week we're kicking off a series on the book of Ruth. We're going to be uh, probably about four weeks in the book of Ruth. Probably if you grew up in a church and you went to church your whole life, you probably never had a preacher preach through the book of Ruth. But here's what I know. It's not part of your Bible by accident. God meant for the book of Ruth to be in there. He meant for every book that's in there to be in there. It's his word. And so we're going to preach through that book. We're going to teach through that book. We're going to talk through it for the next four weeks. Ruth is the eighth book in the Old Testament right after the book of of Judges, and Ruth is a story uh, that shows, it's cliche, but how God moves in mysterious ways, but in kind of in the background. It's a story for, for people who wonder where God is when it seems like he's not there. It's a story for people who wonder where God is when one tragedy after the next attacks their faith. It's a, it's a story for people who wonder whether a life of integrity in the midst of tough times is really worth it or not. And, and it's a story for people who really can't imagine uh, that anything great could come from their ordinary, just plain old ordinary little life. But you know, it is a refreshing book. It's an encouraging book. And as we walk into the winter, when, you know, people get depressed in the winter, you know, the sky's all gray and this book is a very encouraging book, a very refreshing book, and I want us, as we walk into the wintertime, to be encouraged and refreshed. And I want to give you all some context <clears throat> uh, and a little background for the book. I told you a few weeks ago, when you understand some things about a book in the Scriptures, some historical context, background, and so forth, it really makes the, the, the Bible come to life. And so let me set the stage a little bit for this book uh, the, the very first verse, the first five or six words in the book tell us when the events that are going to be in the book, when, when they occurred. The first, words, uh, the first words say, in the days when the judges ruled. And there is a lot packed into those few words. That time period, in the neighborhood of 1,200-1,300 years before Christ, 1,200-1,300 B.C., was a period from Joshua's death and Joshua was the guy that led, uh, he became the Hebrews' leader after Moses died. Moses, the guy that went up on the mountain. Moses, the guy that led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Joshua was the leader after Moses died. And so it's the period from, 
from Joshua until Israel had their first king. Israel didn't have kings before that. Saul was the first king. So it's that 400-ish year period between Joshua and Saul becoming the first king. And it's a terribly um, rough, really rough time in Israel's history. Total chaos. In that time, there was constant violent invasions. There was rampant lawlessness like the Old West kind of shoot 'em up stuff uh, in our country. And the main leaders were judges. A judge was not a courtroom judge. Not, that's, not what the, that's not what a judge was in that time period. A judge was a military hero, a military hero, hero that, that God raised up to rescue Israel from some foreign oppression. And if you read that book of Judges, it cycles of that over and over and over and over. Some people that end in ites, some ites attack Israel, and God raises up a judge to get rid of them. And it's that cycle over and over. And we don't know really who wrote the book. We think probably that it was a woman that wrote the book because it's very much written from a, uh, from a female perspective. Not exactly sure when it was written. We know the time period is written about 12, 1,300 years before Christ. We feel like it was written eight or 900 years before Christ, just a few hundred years after the event. Well, who are the players? Who are the major players in the book? The book named Ruth. Who do you think the main character is? Thank you. You were here in the first service. You cheated. Naomi is the main character in a book named Ruth. So you have Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. You have their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And then you have the two sons' wives, Orpah and Ruth. And then you have a guy named Boaz that we're going to talk about in the, in the coming weeks. So you got Elimelech and Naomi, their two boys, Malon and Kilion, and then Ruth and Orpah, their, their wives. And there's a few different themes in this book. Feelings of emptiness and feelings of fullness and hope uh, and hopelessness uh, and love and loving kindness, chesed in the Hebrew. We talk about that word all the time when we're talking about the Old Testament because it's one of the most frequently used words in the Old Testament. So that theme is in here, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in, in a little while. Loyalty is in here. Sovereignty, the sovereign hand of God is seen throughout this book. And then for sure, redemption. And the book's not really, it's not a book of poetry, it's not uh, a prophecy, you know, it's not really a purely a history book, it's a historical kind of short story. It's only four chapters long. If I could encourage you to do something, read the whole book this week. And then you can do it in 20 minutes probably. Read the whole book next week, and read the whole book the next week, and then read the whole book the next week, and, and then we'll be done with it. It'll do you good to read a whole book of the Bible at the same time. And so it starts off, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So there was a famine. Food was scarce. And it may have been caused by one of these invading armies that kind of raped the land in this time period of the judges because it was such a terrible time. Who knows exactly why, but we do know that it didn't sneak up on God. We do know that it happened under his... The, the, his sort of sovereign hand and his authority. Nonetheless, though, it made people, it drove some people out of Israel. And the text goes on, So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites 
from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. So the famine drove Elimelech and Naomi and their two boys from Bethlehem to Moab. You got to know a little bit about that. For a long time, the relationship between Moab and Israel ebbed and flowed between maybe civility and downright hatred and fighting and war. This must have been a time of relative civility because it doesn't say they had a problem going to Moab. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So almost right off the bat, Naomi loses her husband, and then her two boys marry Moabite women, which is a problem because the, the, the Hebrew people considered the Moabites dirty, nasty, unclean. As a matter of fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, they're cursed. Deuteronomy 23.3 says that no Moabite can ever, it's an eternal curse, no Moabite can ever enter the assembly of the Lord. And they were considered dirty because of this. Now, you're going to have to track with this. They were considered dirty because they were the, the ancestors of, of the son of Lot and one of his daughters that he had an incestuous relationship with in a cave. Actually had an incestuous relationship with both his daughters in the cave. And, and the boy that was born was the product of that. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. He has an incestuous relationship with his two daughters. The kid's born and all the Moabite people. Can y'all say soap opera? I mean, that's a soap opera. And then in verse, uh, verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now you notice in verse 6, the text doesn't say that the people somehow figured out how to end the famine. They learned some kind of agriculture and they figured out how to end the famine. The, 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 the text doesn't say that all of a sudden a food bank opened up behind the barn off the farm and they, figured they got some food from the food bank. It doesn't say any of that. Verse 6 says that the Lord rescued the people from their hunger. The Lord, the text says the Lord came to the aid, the people's aid, and he provided food. Y'all, he is a provider. Do y'all have worship guides? There's some fill in the blanks in there, and this text is in there. He is a provider. He provides what we need. There's a bunch of names in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, a bunch of names for God. One of them is, and most all of these names, they, they're rooted in some character trait. They're rooted in something that he does. They're rooted in, in who he is. One of them is Jehovah Jireh. Y'all ever heard the term Jehovah Jireh? What does that mean? It means the Lord will provide. That's what it means. He is the God, the Lord that provides. And it comes from Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is when Abraham, Lot's uncle, Abraham is told by God to sacrifice Isaac. Who is Isaac? Isaac's his son. Those of you who are daddies out there, and you have a son or a daughter, in this case it's Isaac's son, he tells him to sacrifice his son. 
sacrifice, y'all know what sacrifice means. It means he, he tells him to slay his son. What did Abraham do? He did what he was told. He took the wood and the fire. He's told to go up to this place called Moriah. He took the wood and the fire and a blade. And if you think about it, he took a blade with him up there. And he set all this stuff up. And the boy looks at him. In verse 7, Genesis 22, if you're a daddy, think about this. The boy looks up at him and says, well, daddy, the, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Think about that. Abraham answered to him. Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham said, God himself will provide. And they pressed on. Now he's got Isaac bound up, his son. Bound up, and he built the altar. And he raises up the knife to to do what the text says, to slay his son. And God stops his arm, and Abraham sees an animal, a ram, stuck in the thicket over there. And he gets that ram and he sacrifices it because God always provides, y'all. He always provides. And in verse 14 it says, So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. He provides big stuff. He provides little stuff. He provides medium-sized stuff. But he, he, he provides according to his will and according to his plan. And his will and his plan are always, not some of the time, a thousand percent of the time, always better than mine and always better than yours. That deserves an amen. Look, his plan is always better than our plan. We have to trust that. It's not complicated. And I'm not even saying it's easy. I'm saying that it's not complicated. Just last Monday night, six days ago, we're out with M2540, our street ministry. We're out on the streets. We got 30 blankets left. 30 blankets. Hold on to that number for a minute. We got 30 blankets left, and we go to one of the stops we make, 13th Street and 5th Avenue at a transitional, uh, pla- a transitional kind of home called the Job House. It ain't nothing fancy, but they got a roof and they got heaters, and they got air conditioner in the wintertime, I mean in the summertime. So we stop there, and right there, if you know 13th Street and 5th Avenue, anybody know what's on the very corner? Crystal's on the corner. We pull in there, and I had told the team that I don't want those blankets given out at the Job house because I wanted those blankets held back for our unsheltered homeless friends. The people at Job house got a roof and a heater, so I wanted them held back, so, but I also wanted a sack full. So I eased myself on over to the crystal, and it must have been that they were sacrificing a cow in the back because it took 25 minutes to get four greasy little thin hamburgers while I was in the crystal, Susan went with me, and she did eat a crystal burger too. But while we're in there, what you reckon happened? They gave away all the blankets at the Job house. And in transparency, guess what? I was ticked. I was t- I'm not supposed to say that. I'm, maybe pastor's not supposed to get ticked. I was ticked. Part of that whole little narrative, the first part of it, did you all hear all the eyes in there? I wanted this, and I wanted that, and I didn't want this, and I didn't want that. All of that stuff was about me, 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 me. And what did I say? I said, I was mad. I was upset that that happened while I was watching them sacrifice a cow at the crystal. Um, but here's what I didn't want somebody that has heat in a roof to have a blanket over somebody who's sleeping in the woods or on the street. That was 9 o'clock Monday night. 15 hours and 52 minutes later at 12.52 p.m. on Tuesday, I get a phone call 
from a friend of mine who's an elder at Calvary Baptist Church, which is a great church on O Moon Road. And guess what he said? He said, hey, man, we got 300 brand new blankets and we need somebody to give them to. Think about that. Think about that. I like walked outside and just said, I give up. I just give, I give up. That was on Monday. On Thursday, because when God provides most of the time, he overflows the provision. So that was Monday at 12.52. Excuse me, that was Tuesday at 12.52 p.m. On Thursday, I get another call from a buddy of mine who I hadn't talked to in a couple months, and he, um, he was helping a friend of his move. And they were packing the guys up. He's go, the guy's going from a big house to a little house, and he had all kind of stuff. And, and he, he said, I got some blankets. How many blankets do you think he had? 30. 30. The exact number that we had on Monday night. And then he said, oh, by the way, I got about 20 heavy camouflage hunting jackets as well. God is a provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. He provides. Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And then she kind of prays over Orpah and Ruth. This is kind of a prayer. She says, may the Lord show you kindness. Chesed is that word. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, this is Orpah and Ruth, said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, 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 my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord, remember this, because the Lord has turned his hand against me. At this they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and, but Ruth clung, clung to her. So Naomi encourages the two of them, Orpah and Ruth. Go, she says, go back, go back to your mamas. Go back to your mamas' homes, presumably so they could remarry inside of their culture properly. And this theme, one of these themes, this theme of chesed, loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal, covenantal kind of love, it's introduced in verse 8. Chesed, there's a major amount of loyalty inside of that word. And Naomi feels helpless, and Naomi feels hopeless. And she feels like she has nothing to give these two girls, this Orpah and Ruth, to include more husbands. She feels burdened that she needs to provide a husband for them, and she can't. And so she prays in, in that little passage. She prays that the Lord would deal with them with steadfast love. Both resist leaving, but Orpah, crying, left. And Ruth, the text says, clung to her. The Hebrew word is dabak, clung. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24. Anybody know where you always hear the word cleave quoted from Genesis 2? In weddings, all the time. And it's speaking of when a husband is to leave his parents and do what? Cleave to his wife. Hold on to his wife. Cling to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. There's so much in that word in verse 14, but Ruth clung to her. It requires like, like leaving membership 
in one organization, leaving membership in one group forever and joining permanently another group. Ruth was abandoning her Moabite roots to remain forever permanently with Naomi. One of the values at my church, in our church, and it's on the wall out there, is big faith. Stuck on a big square out there, and and here's what it says. And this is one of the the fill-in-the-blanks in your worship guide. We are big faith, risk-taking, adventurous believers. Big faith. And we'd rather make mistakes than miss opportunities. Why do you think we do the things that we, we feel God is telling us to do? He doesn't tell us to sit on our rear ends and do nothing. He tells us to have big faith and take calculated, intelligent risks, not stupid risks, intelligent, informed risks, And I want to do that rather than miss an opportunity. Our faith does not make us safe. It makes us courageous. Ruth had big faith. As a matter of fact, Ruth had huge faith. Orpah, and I'm not hammering Orpah, but Orpah did the sensible. Orpah did the sensible expected thing. Nothing wrong with that. If you want to sit on the couch and eat chips and watch TV, that's okay. That's what Orpah did, the sensible expected thing. But Ruth did the extraordinary, the the unexpected thing. And whatever her motivation was, affection or, um, or loyalty or idealism, whatever her motivation was to cling to Naomi, she did in fact sacrifice her destiny for to cling to a seemingly old, helpless, hopeless mother-in-law. The text goes on in verse 15. Look, said Naomi, and I want you to think this verse, it is almost like a movie script, and you got a director, you're reading a screenplay, and you have a director, and he's saying to Naomi and Ruth, because that's who's talking, when Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law's going back to her people and her gods, go back with her. It's almost like the director says, now y'all look yonder and, and Orpah's walking off into the sunset and she can see her mama's home back on the horizon. And that's the image there. Naomi is saying, Ruth, go back there with her and find you a husband. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave. It's almost like you can hear Ruth say, enough. If I wanted to go back, I'd go back. I don't want to go back. I want to stay with you. So the text says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. And then she says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. She says, I will die. Uh, Where you die, I will die, and where you are buried, I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, she says, be it ever so severely, if even death separates me and you. And, And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, She stopped urging her. So Naomi asked the two of them to go back for the third time. Ask them to go back. Go back to your mama's house. Ruth's answer in verse 16 and 17, one of the most touching dialogues of love ever ever recorded in the scriptures. She pledges, Ruth does, steadfast devotion to Naomi. She pledges steadfast devotion to Naomi's people. And most importantly, she pledges steadfast devotion to Naomi's God. Ruth's given up every single thing that she has ever known to care for Naomi for the rest of Naomi's life. This is another example of that theme of of chesed. And she didn't just say in this verse, or these verses, she didn't just say to to Naomi that that she would accompany her 
on her travels. She didn't say to her, um, Miss Naomi, my name is Ruth, and I will be your Uber driver today. She, she, didn't, she didn't say that. She didn't say that she would, she didn't even just say that she was going to settle permanently with Naomi. Verse 16, though, says, Your people will be my people and your God my God. When she said that, she left everything behind. She left all of her ethnic roots behind. She left her religion behind. And she adopted Ruth's nationality and, and Ruth's religion. I mean, excuse me, Naomi's. And, and Naomi's God. And from that point on, from that point on, all of her kin people, all of Ruth's kin people from that point on would be Israelites. All of Ruth's kin people from that point on, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would be the God that they bowed the knee to and worshipped. And Ruth took on this uncertain future of this bitter old lady, this bitter old widow, in a land, because they were heading back to Israel, in a land that she didn't know anybody, in a land that she as a Moabite basically generally had, had no rights, no legal rights. And given the rivalry forever back and forth between Moab and Israel, she was walking right into racism. There's no doubt about it. She looked different, she talked different, her ethnicity was different, and they were going to drill her for it. And she knew it. She knew it. She knew that prejudice was going to come because of where she was from and because of who she was. But, y'all, that's the character of Ruth. You want to mimic somebody's character? Mimic the character of, of Ruth. Her abandonment of family, her abandonment of, of her religion, her abandonment of her culture, her abandonment of her country completely foreshadows what Jesus tells us 11, 12, 1300 years later. His teaching when he says to be his disciple requires me and you to be willing to renounce all family for the sake of the kingdom of God. And, and you may not have to do that. My prayer is that you will absolutely not have to do that. My prayer is that your whole family is a bunch of Christians, and when you get saved, they wrap their arms around you, and they love you, and they encourage you, and they pray with you, and they study the Bible with you, and you go to church with them somewhere. That's the prayer. It just may not always work out that way. And you should be willing, you should be willing to do it. Honestly, when I got saved, and I let my mom and dad know that night, it was almost five years before they ever spoke another word to me or Susan. Me and my dad worked together for 10 plus years every day. We were this close. And in one night, they didn't talk to me or Susan. And we had little kids at the time for five years. When I told my sister that I'd gotten saved, screamed, cussed me out on the phone, hung the phone up, didn't talk to me for four or five years. Now, I hope that doesn't ever happen to anybody. It's not a complicated thing, though. If I got to choose between my family and my culture and my ethnicity over here or Jesus, I'm choosing Jesus. That's not a hard decision. Now, let me change the way I say that. It's not a complicated decision. There may be consequences, but you know what? God is a redeemer. God redeemed the relationship with my mom and dad. He redeemed the relationship with my sister. We've never been closer than we are right now. And my prayer is that they will come to know the Lord before he takes them home. I mean, I, that's the prayer. And I've got to trust that that is going to happen. And I'm going to be obedient and try to do whatever 
he tells me to do. My point in this, though, is if you've got to choose, you've got to choose Jesus. Now, let's look back at those verses 8 through 13 real quick. When Naomi encourages Orpah and Ruth to go on back to Mama's house and find them some good Moabite men, she even says to them, why are you going to come with me? You think I'm going to have some more sons? Let's pretend that I do. You're going to wait around for them to grow up? And I think this marriage talk is there for us to, to, to prepare us for what's coming in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 for a custom in Israel. And that custom in Israel is going to turn everything around for Naomi in the, the next two or three chapters. And that custom was when an Israelite husband died, his brother's brother, a brother or a cousin or somebody, would marry that widow to keep the brother's name going. And Naomi is referring to that in verse 11 when she says that she doesn't have any more sons for either one of them to marry. She thinks it's hopeless. She thinks it's completely hopeless for Ruth and Orpah to hang on to them. But then in verse 13 she says this. She says, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. There's a lesson here. When we have decided... Remember I'm saying when we have decided that God has turned against us, when we have decided that he's forsaken us, when we have decided that he's forgotten about us, maybe even when we have decided that he has turned against us, we always exaggerate the hopelessness. But all the while he's working. All the while he is working. We become so bitter that we can't even see the rays of light peeking behind the clouds. But he's working. It was God who moved them to Moab because he was working. It was God who provided for them while they were in Moab because he's working. It was God that turned them back to go to Israel because he's working. It was God who had Ruth cling to Naomi because he's working. He just keeps on working and doing the things that he does, but Naomi had gotten so bitter that she can't see his mercy at work in her life. She's blinded by her circumstances. You ever feel that way? I'm going to say you're lying if you don't. Like, God, why are you hammering me? Why is this happening? God, why is that happening? Big things and little things and medium-sized things. It can be a little thing that is as trivial as this. Tuesday, Stephen Fortenberry's first day on our staff. Tuesday. I say I'm going to meet him at, at the office at 8 o'clock. And I'm usually at the office way before 8 o'clock. Y'all, apparently around 8 o'clock, there's crazy traffic on J.R. Allen, if you didn't know that. Well, I'm at the stoplight trying to turn left about 10 minutes to 8 from J.R. Allen on a flat right road. I had to sit through three lights. I'm a grown man. I was getting mad. I had to roll the window up so people wouldn't hear me making a fool out of myself. And then something just came over me and said, you know what? He may be keeping me from getting in an accident on Flat Rock Road. And I'm not trying to over-spiritualize everything. I'm not. But it just gave me peace to know that he is working in the seemingly trivial things that we don't even know what's... It gave me total peace. It may be a big thing. It may be a long-term relationship that you've been in just got wrecked. And you are really broken up uh, about it. But you know what? Very often you read about these things like all the time, that God brings somebody else into your life. You fast forward 10 years, you got three kids, two dogs, seven fish, four cats, and you're living in a new house with a fenced yard, and you're happier than you have ever been in your life. 
but you can't see all of the things that are going on in the background, all of the orchestrations that are happening. You have to trust that Romans 8.28, which is a promise to believers, it is a promise to believers. It's not a promise to unbelievers. It's not a promise to the lost. Romans 8.28 is for those that love the Lord, for those that love God. He takes everything and puts it in a pot and stirs it up and works it together for the good according to whose will? His or ours? According to his will. For those that love the Lord, he works everything out. He works everything together for good according to his will. And now look, I'm not supposed to shoot ahead, but I'm going to shoot ahead a little bit. I'm going to give you a little sneak peek. You look at the last verse in the book of Ruth, verse uh, 22 of chapter 4. There's a child that's born to Ruth. Ruth does get married. I'm not ruining the story for you. You can read it yourself. I hope you do before the week is out. She ends up marrying a guy named Boaz. Boaz. During that tumultuous period of the judges. They have a child. That child's name is Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of King David. That's a big deal. King David was the greatest king that ever lived in Israel. King David brought Israel to all of the heights of her glory. Hold that thought. That's Ruth. A thousand, twelve, thirteen hundred years before Christ. Look at the first chapter of the book of Matthew. Verses five and six. Written 12, 1300 years later. Now, it says Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was who? Ruth, the lady we're reading about. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And then the next 10 verses in this genealogy, I'm one of the weird guys that loves the genealogies in the Bible because there's so much in it. The next 10 verses continue the genealogy from David to who? Jesus. God is always working. He's always working, y'all. And he has everything at his disposal. He is God. He created everything. He can do with it whatever he wants to. He can do with me and you whatever he wants to. He can do whatever he wants to with our dogs and our cats and our stuff and our cars and whatever. It's all at his disposal. Look right there in verse 5. Flip back to that if you can, if it's on the screen. Was that verse on the screen? Verse 5. Rahab, Boaz's mama, in the line of the Messiah. Boaz's mama, Rahab, who is she? Mm, She's a hooker. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. And she is in the line of your Messiah, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, a thousand-something years earlier. Think about that. I can only imagine, y'all, in in Ruth's world, all of her friends and all of her family and and the folks in the cubicles next to her downtown at Tesis where she works, Ruth, that they're all texting her and they're calling her and they're Facebook instant messaging her and they're saying, you don't need to go with this lady Naomi. You need to go back to your mama's house. You need to go back with her. Have a few, find you a good Moabite husband. Get married. Have a few kids. Be a soccer mom. Everything that makes sense tells Ruth not to go with Naomi. But God's working his plan and he pricks her heart. Y'all, he's in the heartbreaking business. That's, that's just like what he does. And one of the main messages in this book is that God is at work in what feels like for us the worst of times. And in those times, God has everything at his disposal. When you think he is farthest from you, he's working behind the scenes. When you think that he's forgotten you or forsaken you or even so much as turned against you, y'all do know he doesn't do that. 
That's a lie from hell. He doesn't do that. He's laying foundation stones. He's laying down stepping stones to bring peace and joy into our lives. Think about this. It'll blow your mind. Something, something, something tells Elimelech to leave Israel. Something tells him to leave Judah, Bethlehem. Something tells Naomi to leave Moab and go back to Judah. Something tells Orpah to stay behind. And don't think that's trivial either that Orpah stayed behind. That's providential. Something told her to stay behind. Something tells Ruth to go on with Naomi. Something tells her not only to go on with Naomi, but to cling, to cleave to Naomi. What do you reckon that something is? That something would be the Holy Spirit of God. Pricking hearts all along the way. So he tells Ruth to cling to Naomi and to go with her. And over 1,200 years later, Jesus Christ is born 20-something generations after that. Do you think that just is coincidental? It is not. He's moving stuff around, but you don't even see it happening. Promise you Ruth and them didn't see it happening. Who would have imagined in the worst of all times, this period of the judges, that God was quietly moving in the tragedies of just a little old, plain old, regular little family in the plains of Moab just on the other side of the Dead Sea because he was preparing the way for the Messiah. So here's what you can take from this. If, if anything has fallen in on you to make your future seem hopeless, learn from Ruth that God is at work for you in the background, behind the scenes, to give you a future and to give you a hope. And a future and a hope, y'all, is what separates a believer from an unbeliever. In simple terms, look at what Jeremiah said 800 years or so before Christ. Chapter 29, verse 11. Very often quoted passage, mostly quoted radically out of the context to mean something that it doesn't mean. But here's what he said. He said, for I know the plans I have for you. And that word for word translated is, for I know the thoughts that I'm thinking about you. Think about that. All the time, God is thinking thoughts about you. That's what that says. All the time. He's thinking thoughts about you. So it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. That word prosper is shalom. Do you all know what shalom means? Peace. It's not financial prosperity. It's not at all what that passage means. He has plans to bring you peace. Y'all, when the doctor told me I had cancer, the second he told me that, I had total peace. The most inexplicable, unexplainable thing, I can't even imagine it. That is what he promises to us. So, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to bring you peace, and not to harm you. God does not have plans to harm you. Ruth, excuse me, Naomi thought he did. Naomi did think he did. She said he had forsaken her. He had brought harm to her. Jeremiah says, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, and plans to give you what? A hope and a future. A hope and a future. And he's telling that to people, Jeremiah's telling that to people who had just been snatched out of their homes and taken off into exile. And he's telling them, God's got your back. God's got your back. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in my life, but I don't know what's going on in your life. Something is going on in everybody in this room's life. 
But you know what? God is thinking good thoughts about you. God has plans for peace for you. God has, has not plans to harm you. He has plans to give you hope in the future. The promise in Romans 8, 28. These are all promises to believers, y'all. And so I'm telling you, and that promise is out there for anybody that wants to say yes. And then all you've got to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead to prove it. That's it. It's not complicated. It's not a big algorithm. That's all there is to it. And those promises will apply to you. And so if that happened to you today, matter of fact, let's y'all close your eyes, kind of bow your heads, and not that that's required, but here's the deal. If, if I want you to say this to yourself right there, that today's the day that I want those promises to apply to me. Today is the day, Lord, that I want to make you my leader. I want to make you my forgiver. Today is the day where I want to honor your will and not my will. Today's the day that I kind of realize it's not all about me, that it really is about you. But at the core of the core, today is the day that I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that I'm saved. And that that death on that cross and that resurrection were for me to pay my penalty. Today is the day, Lord, that I make you my leader and my forgiver. In Jesus' name, amen. So look, if that, if that happened to you today, the heavens are screaming in joy because he is thinking thoughts about you. So if that happened, you got a connection card on the seat back in front of you. There's a checkbox there that says, I got saved. We're simple people around here. It's not a big formula. It says, I got saved. Check that box. And I'd love for you to check the box underneath it that says you want to take the God plunge, which is what we call baptism next Sunday. We're doing a God plunge. Check those boxes. We want you. We want to pray with you. Our prayer team is going to be back there in the corner. And so if anybody needs prayer, wants prayer, or if you want to go back there and pray for them, go back there when, this, uh, when the worship service is over. And if you do fill that connection card out, you can drop it at the connections desk right outside of that door. Or if you really want, you can put it in the offering bucket that's fixing the that's about to come around. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so we're now we're going to we're going to take we're going to uh, take up a tithe, take up an offering. This is the time in that in that in our service where where the people that call my church home, we're going to trust God with our stuff, with our resources. Usually, the last place that anybody ever trusts the Lord with, because we want to cling, we want to cleave to our stuff. God says, release that stuff. We don't need to be clinging to our stuff. It's all His anyway. And we just want to be obedient to what He says to do. And we want to trust Him with our resources. And so if I can call the host team up, let me say a prayer over this offering. Lord, we love you today. We, we do want to be obedient, Lord, and we want to trust you with our resources. Lord, we're just thankful that we get to have some of it. Lord, we pray that you would take this tithe, take these offerings, and you would use them for your will and get us out of the way. Lord, we're just thankful that you allow us to be part of what you're doing in the life of this church. And we know that it takes resources. Lord, we know that it takes lots of resources. And so we know you're going to use it, allow us to be good stewards of it. Go out into the world and tell the world about you. In Jesus' name, amen.